Flash Black Radio is trying to approach health and well-being from a holistic point of view. So we're not just looking at it from the perspective of what you're consuming as far as your diet. We want to make sure that your finances are healthy. We want to make sure that your relationships are healthy. We want to make sure that you are healthy psychologically, physically, spiritually. If it affects the community, we need to talk about it. Finances, let's talk about it. Social issues of the day, let's talk about it. Relationships, let's talk about it. Career paths, how we can better ourselves, how we can better positions for our family, how we can make positions for our families. Let's talk about it. Let's stop beating around the bush and let's get in. Let's get active. Let's get involved. Your diet isn't just what you consume physically. It's what you consume mentally, the conversations you participate in, what you watch on TV, what you listen to on the radio. All of this is a part of your diet and all of this has an impact on your health and your well-being. Flash Black is a new perspective for a multicolored collective. You are now listening to Flash Black. You are now listening to Flash Black Radio. Hello, beautiful people. This is Culture Shock on Flash Black Radio. I am Da Vinci Parks, a.k.a. Lee Bennett III. And today I have a very, very important and special treat for you. I was recently able to run down a doctor. I've been trying to get an interview with him for a couple weeks. He's a good friend of the family, but he's also an incredible doctor. His specialty is urology and he focuses primarily on oncology prostate cancer things of that nature he's a board certified urologist who was educated in undergrad and in medical school at northwestern university graduate school uh, at duke university where he got an executive mba he did his residency at case western university in addition to his fellowship he has been practicing for approximately 25 years he is currently with Carolina Urology Partners, which is a conglomerate of smaller practices that form together to make one larger practice. They have 35 or so specialists right now on staff, and they're looking to add more. They're, again, a fast-growing organization. And Dr. Waterhouse is currently based out of Gastonia in Charlotte, North Carolina. Not only that, but he has a lot of awesome things in the works that we're going to discuss throughout the course of this conversation. So I wanted to go ahead and pick up with this conversation towards the top where I introduce Dr. Waterhouse and then we go from there. So without further ado, Dr. Robert L. Waterhouse Jr. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I want to take a brief moment to first of all, thank my next guests for coming to sit down with Flash Black Radio and, and just impart with us some of his information, some of his knowledge. He's a very busy man. He's a very good man. I can't get past all the HIPAA law type stuff that, you know, is involved. But I'll just say that he's actually helped some people that are near and dear to my heart. So this man is not just an incredible doctor, but he's an all-around great guy in my book. And he focuses on uh, prostate cancer. He's a urologist. He has a number of procedures that he does, but you, uh, can prostate cancer, if I'm not mistaken, is the number one thing that he deals with from early detection to advanced stages. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please do me the honor and the favor of welcoming Dr. Robert Waterhouse. Doc, how are you doing? Good, good. Well, thanks for the kind introduction. I'm <laughs> doing well. <laughs> it's well-deserved, well-deserved. Uh, so I, I want to get right in and ask you some questions because I know you're a busy man. So I just want to get in and just fire some questions off and feel free, as I said before, to answer as, as freely as you would like. Okay? Sure. All right. So the first question I really want to ask you because uh, I'm just, I'm a nerd in a sense. And I, I watched a lot of hospital movies over the years from MASH to Grey's Anatomy to ER and everything in between. So my question to you would be, what led you to practice or to seek out urology? Why not like car- cardiology or something of that ilk? Wow. Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> I will be candid because it, it, this is an actual story. Okay. When, when, I, when I entered medical school, I always thought that I wanted to be a surgical subspecialist. I, I, I liked the idea of trying to help people uh, not only by imparting uh, cognitive knowledge to, to help diagnose and treat medical problems, but also by actively using your hands the way the surgeons do. Mm-hmm. When I, it was time for me to rotate on a surgical, uh, surgical subspecialties, I was most interested in either neurosurgery and ENT surgery. But there was a lot of demand uh, for, uh, neurosurgery. And therefore there was a lottery, which I did not win. Okay. And therefore I had to get what was left over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And what was left over was urology. And that's actually how I, I entered urology. The, the odd thing is what I did not know, because actually at the time that I was starting this clinical clerkship during my third year of medical school, I really didn't know anything about urology. But at Northwestern University, where I attended medical school, uh, the urology department had a huge emphasis on teaching medical students and teaching in general. And the climate was, um, was, was, was so favorable for students in terms of how devoted they were to making sure that we were present during surgery and explaining things during surgery and always uh, asking us questions and get, giving us a chance to ask questions, that it was, a, it, was, it was a very, very educational, interactive experience. And, and part of what drew me to it was actually the experience. Um, and uh, and I, I think that has a huge impact. It's possible that I, if I would have gone to a different medical school where the teaching program in urology would have been different, mm-hmm. I may not have been as interested. So I think a, I think a lot of it drew out of of just how motivated they were to um, to make it a good experience for students and make sure students were learning that um, I, I became interested in it. Okay. Okay. Wow. All right. Okay. Well, that was quite candid. <laughs> so uh, so I, the, the the thing I just I guess I wanted to, to ask or and I don't know if there's any, I've heard this by listening to talk radio and things of that nature, but I've heard that there's so much focus on the sexier disciplines like cardiology. Now we're looking at a scale where people are going to be more focused on cardiology, but at the same time, there's going to be less people who specialize in things. And, you know, pediatricians, we're going to have less pediatricians because a lot of people are getting out of the business as they retire. 
So there are going to be less people that specialize in that area. So I would imagine that you actually, not knowing, actually got into something that's really good because it's a very important field and there's more being learned about it as well. It was fortunate. One thing I did appreciate when I was rotating on the clerkship is that there were, there were a lot of advances being made uh, in urology. Um, this, was, this was actually a little before cardiology became a very dynamic field, which it ultimately has become. Mm-hmm. But uh, urology was making a lot of advances in the, uh, in the uh, 1980s. I, I was present when the first uh, stone procedure was done at Northwestern when, um, as opposed to making an incision, a telescope was used to, uh, to remove a stone in a kidney. Uh, and, and that was really exciting. And shortly after that, shockwave therapy came about where you could treat stones by just delivering shock, shockwaves from outside the body. And breaking where it up, Where you wouldn't put right? anything internally. To break it up and then the stone fragments would pass. So that was another thing that drew me to urology was, was, was how dynamic it was. Uh, but pertaining to your, your comment about uh, the uh, entering a field where there's a lot of a lot of um, change and a lot of need is, is absolutely true. Urology is, is both of those. But in general, there's going to be such a huge doctor shortage. It's, it's actually going to span across all fields. Okay. Um, uh, I can say that we know currently that there, there are about two jobs available for every urology resident that's finishing today. So urology is already in, in a... Um, Steep at a level demand. where there's a there's a national shortage. Wow! But um, it's not the only field, unfortunately, that that is that is dealing with that predicament. Um, and and hopefully, we'll figure out a way to to improve upon that. Currently, the the levels of residency spots that the United States government will will fund, and it's actually funded through a part of Medicare dollars that are paid to academic medical centers for training residents. It's, it was fixed at 1997 levels, and it has not been increased since then. I've actually gone to Congress and, and, and spoken to several different congressmen in both the House and the Senate about this issue, and they all gave a very, very similar response, and that is that they don't know where the money would come from to fund more spots, and therefore wow. they were not interested in doing it. So at this point, we're facing a huge shortage. We don't have a way to increase the number of people that are being trained except for the medical centers themselves paying for the residency spots, which is happening at some centers just because uh, they value the, um, the training programs. But uh, the government is not funding any more than they were in 1997. Okay, so when a hospital steps in to do something that I guess the government was doing at 97 at a specific level that I guess was meeting a specific need, now that hospitals are stepping in in certain instances, what is the impact being felt in the, in that? What, what does that mean? Well, that means that the, the number of people who need health care and the intensity of healthcare has grown a lot in the last 19 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, we have a greater demand for more physicians than we had 19 years ago. Uh, but if the government's not funding 
to train more physicians, then we have a shortage. The, the interesting thing about the shortage is that they have funded to develop more medical schools. Mm-hmm. So for the first time, I, b- I believe, I'm not 100% sure of this, but last uh, this, this calendar year, 2016, there were more medical students who finished medical school then there were residency slots available for them. Oh, okay. So you have, you have and I forget, it, it, it's well over a thousand. I can't remember how many thousands or if it was a little bit over a thousand, but there, there, there's over a thousand medical students uh, across this country of which there's been a substantial investment on their part and a substantial investment on the medical school's part mm-hmm. to, for them to, go through an educational process to get an MD degree that are not pursuing training to become certified physicians in a specialty, whether it be primary care or, or a subspecialty in some other field, which is an enormous waste of resources. Okay. Um, they've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into their own education and the, and naturally there's been an investment on the side of the medical school as well into them. And because we don't have enough residency slots for them to pursue training, they're not, they're, we're not getting anything out of that investment in their medical education. Wow. So this, this mismatch is something new as well. So this has because to be addressed. Yeah, because as I mentioned, they, they funded the development of more medical schools. Mm-hmm. And they funded the development of increasing medical school size. But they didn't fund residency training spots. Which is, so, so they're creating basically a bottleneck in their own system, in, in a sense, right? Because I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that comment. I, I was saying, so I guess in essence, they're creating a bottleneck in their own system yeah. because they're, they're creating exactly. an opportunity for people, more people to be educated. But then when it comes down to getting that specialized training, they're, they're kind of leaving them high and dry, which is kind of, that's, that's, incredibly short-sighted and unfortunate but not surprising (laughs) (laughs) not surprising at all unfortunately wow uh, unfortunately it's an example of dysfunction inside the beltway right um but you're you're absolutely right there there is a bottleneck that is uh is is present when if it was not present it could help to alleviate this very very large uh, doctor shortage that we're facing Wow. That's getting, that's getting worse with each year. Mm. Wow. Okay. Okay. So moving on, it's not that I want to move away from that. That's wow. Okay. So uh, a question that I wanted to ask you was what kind of philosophies and methodologies do you maintain as a medical professional? Do you lean towards what is considered Eastern medicine, which is considered by many outside of the medical field to be more holistic? Do you lean towards Western medicine? Are you somewhere in between? Do you pray after all you've seen? Because some people kind of, you know, after they've gone through medical school and they've seen enough, some people become skeptics or cynics. How do you approach your job? Because it's, it's, I imagine anytime you're in something like this, where you see so much you know, there's a there's a lot of room to be hopeful, but there's also a lot of room to be just like, wow, this is discouraging. So, how do how do you get through it? What is your way of getting through your your job? Well, that's 
that's a real open-ended question there. <laughs> well, I like, um, I like open-ended questions because it allows you to do what you say, what you feel. Uh, I'm a man of faith. And so I have to, I have to approach every day and every patient with an understanding that, uh, that, that the Lord has his hands in what, and in, in the, in the patient that I see and what I'm able to do for them. So I do pray for my patients and I, I pray that uh, the Lord directs my care to be, uh, to be the best possible for each, each and every one of them. Um, but the, I, I, I have a philosophy that I think that the Lord has allowed for doctors to be present, uh, to act, to do something good. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that, uh, we have to be good stewards over the knowledge and the technology that we have to take care of people. I, I don't think that we can, we, I, I don't think faith means ignoring what's available for us to help people. Mm-hmm. So I, I still think that it's important for us to do the best that we can. And I think it's important for patients to understand the potential benefit of what we have to offer them. So I, I, I don't think having faith means that you you ignore what we can do at a, at a human level to help each other. Excellent. Um, yeah. I, 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 pract- I, I would say I probably practice Western allopathic medicine that I was trained in medical school to do, but I have a, I've, I've developed a greater understanding that there's a whole lot that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a whole lot that can be beneficial to patients that we were never taught. Uh, and, um, I believe in a lot of things that had nothing to do with allopathic medicine training. I, I believe in acupuncture. Uh, I believe that there's certain, uh, nutritional interventions that can be helpful that are, that are not part of standard care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and I, I, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I don't discourage patients from seeking other methods for their health. Uh, if I think that it's still consistent that we're doing what we can do related to what we know and what's, what's evidence-based medicine. But there are other things out there that can be helpful that have just not been adequately evaluated or studied. Right. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. Right. It just means that within the standard allopathic medicine um, uh, practice that we have learned how to perform, we just don't know about it. Right. So um, I, I, I don't deny that there are things that we don't understand that can be helpful to people. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm much more open than I think a lot of my colleagues are. I don't you know, tell patients that if, if, if you do that, I'm going to fire you or you shouldn't come back here. Or, um, I, just, I just encourage patients to keep me in the loop mm-hmm. so that when they do have things that we do understand, you know, evidence-based interventions that are helpful, then they're, they're not, they're not denying themselves from that. But, uh, if there are other things that, uh, that, that they believe that they might benefit from that, um, are not dangerous, mm-hmm. I don't discourage it. Awesome. And that, that actually, that actually touched a chord with me because I am somebody, obviously, uh, as full disclosure, I have no medical training whatsoever. <laughs> On another note, I have done a lot of reading just because 
I'm curious about a lot of things and I want to know how things work and how things. So if something's going on that I can't understand, then I'll try to read up on it. I'm not going to obviously have the understanding that somebody who went to medical school would have, but I can at least hold a somewhat intelligent conversation, I would think, on something that I've read upon because it's important to me and I feel like I need to know certain things. So that being said, I personally uh, have a belief that there are a lot of things that can be remedied a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times or at least made better if you adjust it or address it through diet and exercise. So I think there are sometimes when you go to certain doctors, there is a certain quickness to kind of prescribe medication before you see if there's another way to head things off at the past, so to speak. So I, I, I like that you said some of the things that you said, because I think that diet is such a key factor. And I, I think that's not something that should be overlooked because sometimes diet can play into things in so many minuscule ways, it seems, but at the same time, not so much. So, I think No, that- I agree. I would add I would add one third thing to that, and that is uh, trying to remove uh, toxins from your environment, whether it be cigarette smoke or or poor air quality or poor water quality or um, pollutants, et cetera. Uh, but I, I do think that that those things are extremely important and extremely helpful, some of which have evidence based uh, medicine research to support them. Uh, and I really think that this is one of the, the big shortfalls in, in our healthcare system that our healthcare system is more disease-based than prevention-based. And if we intervened at an earlier stage with better information about how to remove toxins, Mm -hmm. how to make your environment safer, how to eat better and how to exercise better, uh, we we could have a huge impact at a much lower cost. Right. And I, I, I would... I would hope that in the future that we learn how to incorporate a lot more about health before it becomes disease into, into the way that we take care of people. Excellent. Uh, and I, and I, I certainly will be trying to ring that bell from Flash Black uh, Radio's platform because I, I wholeheartedly believe that is something that we need. To, I think we need to be more proactive. And in an earlier conversation, you were saying that we need to be more mindful of taking control and ownership and accountability for our own health and well-being. And part of that entails what you, what you, just, what you just said. So yes. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that, on that note. So I want to switch and just... Uh, I want to brag on you a little bit because I think this is a little bit awesome. So when I was told about what you're doing outside of just being an awesome doctor, as I'm sure everybody can tell to this point. I came into the knowledge that you are involved in 11 or so studies that you're, you're working on, some of which involve advanced prostate cancer. Uh, that is all true. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> look, 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 okay, so the reason why, like, that, that pause is funny because <laughs> I, 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 I was, I, I was going to ask you this question. But a lot of people find it difficult, and I know there's so much that can go into one or two studies. How do you find the time and energy to be involved with that many studies? Wow. It, it derives out of my 
it, it really goes all the way back to medical school uh, it, to, to, to uh, be candid. And that is when I was rotating on neurology and I became interested in neurology within that department at Northwestern, I actually developed an interest in research. And I actually, I did research within the department and I've, I've always from that point forward been interested in how do we do things better? How do we, how do we frame a question? How do we answer a question? How do we make advances so that we're doing things better than we were yesterday? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's how I became interested in research. Uh, some of the research that I'm involved with currently is uh, based on uh, something I may have an interest in and designed or may be something that I'm participating in as one of a number of studies in a multi-institutional um, study to look at a new drug for prostate cancer as an example. Mm-hmm. The, um, I, I think the time comes from carving it out out of, out of interest from other things. Um, so uh, it, it's something I want to do. It's something that, uh, that helps to motivate me that I'm, I'm trying to do something uh, with advancing the field. I'm trying to learn something more so that you don't become static uh, because there's so much out there that we don't know and we don't understand and we need to do better. Mm-hmm. So I, it, I, I just prioritize it enough that I figure out some way to do it. It's, it's not easy, but mm-hmm. if you have enough interest, if you have enough, if you're inquisitive enough that you want to do it, you'll find, you a way. find ways to make it happen. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. True words have never been spoken. If you, if you want it, if you want it badly enough, you will make it happen. Yeah. Whew. Okay. So I want to know from your perspective, actually, from what is your clinical definition and also give kind of a layman's definition of what prostate cancer is, why it's so important for people to be aware of it. And I really want to start digging into what people need to do to start, you know, looking at preventative care. So first and foremost, what is prostate cancer and why is it such a big deal? Okay. In in kind of simple terms, whenever you're talking about cancer, what you're really talking about is uh, unregulated cellular growth in our body. So our cells grow and turn over and die and new cells develop. And that happens within organ systems. That happens within the bloodstream. That happens within our body. And that's normal. Mm-hmm. You know, like our dead skin cells come off, new skin cells are formed. Mm-hmm. What happens is that that whole process is very tightly regulated so that the cells grow and have a specific function that that is important. You know, skin cells create a barrier to, to the, the levels of tissue beneath them. And, and liver, um, uh, liver helps to metabolize different things within our bloodstream and, and make certain uh, proteins and hormones. And the kidneys filter blood to get rid of certain toxins that end up coming out in the urine, et cetera. So when you develop a cancer, then you have unregulated cell growth in a, in, a, in a system or in an organ where the cells that are produced don't do the function that the normal tissue is supposed to perform, and they grow without control. Mm-hmm. So they can grow abnormally and, and, and proliferate 
and multiply and multiply and multiply and don't die the way they should die and essentially just take over. And they can take over that organ and then they can get into the bloodstream and spread and start taking over other organs until we have so many vital organs that are damaged that we succumb to it. Mm-hmm. With prostate cancer is, um, is an example of a cancer that has a great frequency. It is the most common cancer that men develop, and it is the second most common cancer that men die of. Okay. Behind uh, what? Lung cancer. Okay. So lung cancer doesn't have quite the incidence, but it's, it's more deadly okay. uh, than prostate cancer. Uh, so that is why it's always on the radar because it is so common. Uh, it's particularly on the radar in the African-American community because African-Americans develop it at about twice the rate of, of Caucasian-Americans and die of it about two and a half times uh, as likely for it to lead to death. Now, why, so why is that? Why is that? Wow, that is, that is a very interesting question because it is actually, I believe it's multifactorial. I believe that there are factors related to heredity mm-hmm. uh, and genetics that lead to uh, a greater incidence of the cancer as well as a, a greater uh, incidence of more aggressive cancer in the African-American community. Mm-hmm. I believe that African-Americans uh, are more likely to be in environments where they may live or work with certain toxins that can damage our DNA and increase our risk for developing uh, multiple types of malignancies. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that our diet is, uh, is, uh, is, doesn't, doesn't protect us from the risk of developing cancers as much as it could. Okay. Uh, not eating a diet that has enough antioxidants in it, uh, being vitamin D deficient, um, eating too many fried foods, eating too many, uh, too much of our diet is uh, based off of red meat mm-hmm. instead of plant-based. Uh, I think all of those are important factors for why it may affect African-American men uh, at a greater incidence and a greater uh, risk of mortality than Caucasian-Americans. Has, has any consideration been given, and I'm, I'm asking this just out of pure curiosity, but has any consideration been given to perhaps stress, like legitimate stress been a contributing factor to cancer? I mean, it, 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 I think, you know, the cells, the body's supposed to do something and it starts to not do something. And to me, I kind of feel like there are certain because I think, for example, cigarette smoke is physically stressing the, the, the body. It's, it physically stresses the lungs and it causes the lungs to, to do more than they're supposed to do in normal situations. Uh, they have to put, uh, do more work and they have more toxins that they have to do with. So the, there are a lot of things. I, is there any type of thought or has there been any consideration given in the medical field with regard to what's, what type of... Uh, Factor stress could be in terms of developing cancers or other ailments. Well, I, I know other ailments like high blood high blood pressure, but but cancer in particular. There's uh, there's there's not only thoughts about it. There's there is uh, research that has shown that stress has an adverse impact on the immune system. Uh, 
And the immune system is our system to help regulate and fight against cancer. Uh, it, it searches out cells that are abnormal and, and eradicates them. Mm-hmm. And if your immune system is not functioning at its best, it won't do that well. Right. Uh, what, we, what we understand is that the molecular biologic level is small numbers of cancer cells are probably produced in all of us on a, on a somewhat regular basis. They never take hold and develop into clinical cancer because of, because of systems that our body has in place to fight against them. Okay. The immune system being one of the most important, if not the most important system that we have to protect against it. So if we are under stress and that impairs the ability for the immune system to do what it needs to do to protect us, then it absolutely would increase our risk for developing cancer. Mm. Uh, and, and related to that, we do know at a genetic level, at a, uh, at a level where you are evaluating genetic pathways, gene pathways for how cancer develops, that the immune system is absolutely involved. Uh, abnormalities in the uh, gene pathways for which our immune system works, our immune cells develop certain, uh, certain attributes and certain functions to fight against cancer are impaired when those, when, 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 when the immune system is impaired in that way, then cancer may not only have a greater tendency to develop, but also can have a greater tendency to be more aggressive or deadly. Mm. So I think that stress is definitely important. The other thing that I didn't mention uh, that may not impact the frequency of cancer developing, but may impact the overall outcome is that African-Americans do tend to have late diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Uh, African-Americans, particularly related to prostate cancer, uh, especially since it affects men, because men have a culture in the African-American environment where they tend to avoid going to doctors unless something is really broken. They don't get as much well health care as they should. Mm-hmm. Preventative uh, health care, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that prostate cancer is not diagnosed at its earliest stage because at its earliest stage, prostate cancer does not cause any symptoms. No one would know. And the way that it is, the way that it is detected is based on a blood test and a physical exam find. And in the absence of having those done, when you feel well, you will not have it diagnosed. You'll have it diagnosed when it has advanced to a stage where it's causing some type of symptom. And that's a late stage diagnosis. And that's a diagnosis that is more difficult to achieve a cure. So that impacts that. And, uh, but the reason for that is not just culture. The reason for that, there are also um, economic factors. Uh, African Americans have a lower rate of health coverage, uh, uh, and therefore the, econom- the economics related to seeing a doctor create a level of impairment, as do other socioeconomic factors in the African American community, including uh, transportation, including availability of pharmacies. Uh, to get prescriptions filled. Uh, so there's, it's, like I said, it's truly multifactorial. Right. Right. So what age are men, and in particular African-American men or Hispanic men, supposed to, what, what age are men just supposed to start getting uh, that feared prostate check where you got to pop on that rubber glove? Yeah. There, there, there are multiple 
recommendations out there about whether you should get uh, a PSA and a digital rectal examination done or not. And if you do get it, there's, there's different numbers out there. Um, the ones that I like to follow recommend that African-American men who do not have a family history of prostate cancer actually start getting checked at age 40. Okay. Uh, and that would include both the rectal exam and the PSA. Okay. Um, now, the follow-up after that is becoming less clear uh, because there is some evidence that if your initial PSA is at an extremely low level and your rectal exam is negative, you may not need to have that done annually. At this point, I've not, ado- I've not adopted uh, any definitive new rec- uh, recommendation to not do it annually, but I think that that is probably going to come out within the next uh, couple of years. Okay. Uh, they're going to they're gonna better define what the risk is of, of, of developing cancer if, if your exam is normal and your PSA is at an extremely low level, uh, that you might not have to have it done as frequently as, as once a year. But currently, I follow um, uh, a once-a-year uh, pattern for African-American men over the age 40. Uh, with the caveat that that's based on them having a 10-year or more life expectancy. Once the life expectancy uh, drops below 10 years, then the utility of screening starts to fall because an early diagnosis of prostate cancer uh, would have a low risk of leading to someone's uh, death if they were going to die of some other disease within a few years. Okay. So as you get older, like you, uh, so in your, you're in your seventies, then maybe you don't get it as much. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think I, and because men in their seventies actually may still have a, a 20 year life expectancy. Uh, I, I wouldn't say strictly seventies, but I would say that once based on their age and health, that their life expectancy is dropping below, uh, 10 years. That's when I would quit. Cause okay. actually there's some, there's some 75-year-old men who actually have a 20-year life expectancy. If, if they're in the top quartile of health for their age at 75, they still have a very substantial life expectancy. So I still do have 75-year-old men that I, I recommend that they get checked. Okay. But um, um, it's, it's a combination not only of age, but also of health and other health problems that impact life expectancy. So not every 75-year-old man is the same. Wow, that sounds like a tough conversation. It's like like we're not going to do any more prostate exams for you. People are like, why, Doc? <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I got a weird sense of humor. Okay, so I, I personally heard recently actually listening to, again, talk radio. This was on Sirius XM. I can't remember the name of the doctor, but he had been in the field of urology for a long time himself, and he was talking about, he was asking a lot of, excuse me, he was answering a lot of questions with regard to people calling in and, and having questions. And he was talking about the Da Vinci robot and things of that nature. And he said something that was interesting to me and something that I have to be mindful of and I want to verify with you. But I've heard through this doctor he's, that there's a 30% increased likelihood of developing prostate cancer if someone within your immediate circle or family genealogy, I guess, has developed prostate cancer is that the case yes i actually thought the number was slightly higher than that but yes okay there's no question that there is there is that 
there is that increased risk, if not a little bit higher, with first-degree relatives who've had prostate cancer. And why does like is is the cancer like you know dialing up the genes or whatever and said hey like you know I I talked to this person you know I, I'll get to you shortly how how does that work? <laughs> well, I was talking a little bit about how there are genetics involved in uh, pathways for how cancer develops. There are genes that uh, uh, tell a cell to produce certain proteins. There are genes that tell a cell to uh, attack a uh, to correct a, 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 a deletion or a problem in a cell that could make it turn into a cancer. So you could, by hereditary, by, by heredity, have a mutated gene passed on that didn't do what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you would be at an increased risk for developing prostate cancer because you've got that same defect in your genome that you're relative that your mother, your father uh, had that, and they gave it to you. Um, now, the interesting thing is uh, within genome, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not just one pathway for how a cancer cell is able to survive and survive the immune system and, you know, survive the way in which cells intrinsically try to repair themselves and not turn into cancer cells. So there's usually multiple hits that have to take place. So your parent may have developed prostate cancer, but you may not develop it even if you had the same genetic defect because there may be other things working in your favor that your parent didn't have. Like you may eat a better diet. You may not smoke cigarettes. Uh, You may exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, You may not be exposed to the same toxins that they're exposed to. So it doesn't mean, and that's why there's not a direct, correlation between your parent has it, oh, well, I guess I'm going to get it because my dad had it. That's not true at all. Uh, So usually it takes multiple hits, and that's why it is so important that we try to take ownership of the things that we can control in our health to try to eliminate those problems from contributing to our risk. When should someone come to see you, say... The light goes on and say, hey, I need, I've heard the narrowing of the, Euro, the urine stream. I've heard that's one thing that could be an issue or less the okay. PC muscles. I've heard that that, that could be an issue. Like what, when should we as men know to go see a urologist? Okay. As a, as, as a matter of routine, I think it's important that men get a well health visit each year and at age 40 for African-Americans and age 50 for Caucasian-Americans, I think that that well visit should include a PSA and a digital rectal exam. If their primary care physician does those things, then they don't absolutely have to see me. If for some reason their primary care physician does not do those things, I would recommend that they get an opinion from a urologist about getting those things done. With regard to when should they see me because they're having urinary symptoms, Again, I'm, I'm kind of a big, I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of primary care. Uh, so I, I actually think that a lot of things should start with primary care. If they go to see their primary care physician when they have a, a urinary complaint, some of the basic things the primary care physician can absolutely manage. Um, they can determine if you have a urinary tract infection. They can determine if you have blood in the urine. They can determine if you've got symptoms related to prostate enlargement, and they can start you on a treatment regimen to address that. 
but if the if they're not satisfied that the primary care physician has adequately addressed the complaint or if the primary care physician has a concern that he doesn't think he can manage the problem or he's not satisfied with the result that the patient is achieving, then he should come see me. Okay. Or come see a urologist. Okay. So getting towards the end of this 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 interview, and again I want to thank you so much for your time and, and for schooling us and, and letting us know so much valuable information. I wanted to know as a professional who sits on the front lines battling cancer on a regular basis, virtually day in and day out? Do you feel like we're we're winning the war on cancer? Do you do you feel like do you feel like there's a breakthrough on the horizon, or do you feel like this is just kind of like the ebb and flow stage still? At at this point, I don't feel like we're winning the war. I think the war is raging, uh, and we have some battles that we've won. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, there are some cancers where we've had huge victories. We've had some huge victories in some of the pediatric cancers, especially some of the leukemias that children get. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're achieving much better cure rates with advances in chemotherapy regimens for that group. We have excellent uh, regimens in chemotherapy for uh, advanced testis cancer uh, that are, are achieving cures with even widely metastatic disease. Uh, but for most of the other cancers, uh, we have a long ways to go where, excuse me, where mortality rates are, are, are not where we want to see them. Early detection helps because uh, we, have a, we have a better ability to intervene with smaller volume of cancer. It, it helps with, with all forms of therapy that we use for treatment to be attacking a smaller volume of cancer, whether it be surgical, whether it be chemotherapy, whether it be radiation. It's always a more, it's a bigger challenge when there's more cancer. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we have a long ways to go because there's, there's toxins and adverse effects related to some of the chemotherapeutic regimens that work, which means that some patients can't tolerate the chemotherapy and can't complete the cycle, even if it would help them. Mm, yeah. uh, there, there are other cancers where we don't have good regimens, especially when the disease is advanced. Mm-hmm. And there's other cancers where, uh, at the time of initial diagnosis, the cancer is oftentimes so far advanced that we don't get good outcomes with uh, some of the brain tumors and pancreatic cancer, for example. And I heard pancreatic uh, cancer is one of the hardest to catch in time. Yeah. Yes, because they don't produce symptoms early. And uh, at the time of diagnosis, they're oftentimes too advanced. So um, we, have, we have a long ways to go. If you, if you look at statistics for mortality related to cancer across multiple different organ systems, um, the mortality rates have declined but very, very, very slowly. The slope of the line is very, very, very slow, slowly downward. So we, we, we make a little bit of progress. We win some battles, but the war is still raging, and we have a long ways to go. We, we have the highest cancer death rate of any country in the world. Mm. Uh, we, have a, we have a long ways to go. Wow. Is there anything 
any anything with regard to prostate cancer and treatments with regard to stem cell research or gene specific therapies or tailor made chemo treatments? Has that been gaining any steam or anything like that? Is that something that you're doing with your studies at all? We're not working on. Personally, I'm not doing any research with stem cell therapy, but what we are doing uh, is we are trying to use gene profiles in cancer to help determine its prognosis, mm-hmm. its likelihood of progression, and therefore making better decisions about using additional therapies at an earlier stage, even before the cancer may progress to that stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's pretty exciting because we, uh, there, there's, there's evidence to show that early intervention with cancers that are going to progress even before they progress can be helpful. And we have some clinical trials looking at medications to use with cancers that are at an early stage even before they progress as well. So um, there's some experimental medications that we have a trial going on to use at an earlier stage, a couple of different medication trials, as well as some of these gene profile studies looking at identification of cancers that are at the highest risk to progress. So there's no question that we're, we're making progress. We're winning some battles, but we just have a long ways to go. Understood. Well, Dr. Waterhouse, it has been an extreme pleasure. I am so thankful that you took the time out of your schedule to talk with us, talk with the audience, and let us know so many interesting and, and powerful facts. And uh, we will hope to be able to reach out to you in the future if we need to ask more questions with regard to your expertise and hope that you can become a friend of the show. Is there anything that you want to address before we, before we sign off? Is there anything else that you feel needs to be addressed? I think we hit a lot of the main points. All right. Uh, and I, I appreciate you giving me the, the opportunity to speak. And, and hopefully uh, the listeners can, can gain something useful out of it. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I feel extremely blessed to have had you on our show. Thank you so much again. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Robert Waterhouse is based out of Carolina Urology Partners, which is out of, well, they have multiple locations, but he is specifically in Charlotte and Gastonia. If you are in that area specifically, please look him up. He's an extremely good doctor, and I highly recommend him for both personal and professional reasons that I I can and can't go into. But I thank you so much for your time, Dr. Waterhouse. And we will look to hopefully speak with you sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. You too. This concludes our interview on Flash Black Radio. I thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you continue to come back and join us for more interviews. Until next time, this is again Lee Bennett III, a.k.a. Da Vinci Parks. Be well. Be good to each other and yourselves. Peace.